Blog Talk Radio.
Greetings, this is Abayomi Azikawe, and welcome back to another edition of the Pan-African Journal. The Pan-African Journal is an audio news magazine. It's brought to you here on a weekly basis. Uh, I am your host, uh, Abayomi Azikawe. Today is uh, Tuesday, uh, November 28th, uh, 2023, and we're broadcasting from our studios in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in. Once again, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, this special edition of our program. Later on, we'll be bringing you our regular Pan-African Newswire report. We'll feature dispatches on the attempted coup in the West African state of Sierra Leone that took place just over the weekend. There are continuing arrests of Palestinians despite the temporary truce with uh, Tel Aviv. Resistance forces in Palestine said earlier today that violations of the pause have occurred on the part of the Israeli Defense Forces. And the United States has blamed Somalians uh, for the purported attempt, attempted seizure of a commercial vessel in the Gulf of Aden. In the second and third hours, we hear a panel discussion on recent developments in Palestine involving uh, the prisoner exchange as well as the five-day truce uh, that has been taking place uh, since last week. These and other features will be brought to you uh, during the course of our program. Stay tuned. We'll take our musical interlude uh, with the Aum Kaltum uh, Orchestra Film Festival continuing. Let's listen in to uh, this opera.
شكل الزمن
Welcome back, and uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide uh, radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, November 28th, uh, 2023. Uh, We're broadcasting from our studios in Detroit, in downtown Detroit. We'd like to thank all of our listeners for tuning in uh, once again uh, to yet another edition of the Pan-African Journal, special uh, worldwide radio broadcast. Right now, we want to move into our Pan-African Newswire segment uh, program. And our lead story uh, deals uh, with the current uh, situation uh, that is taking place uh, in the West African state of Sierra Leone. Uh, Reports that an attempted coup had occurred uh, over the weekend. Sierra Leone's government has designated Sunday's disorder in which armed men attack institutions in the capital city as an attempted coup. The information minister said that gunmen had tried to subvert and overthrow the government on Sunday. The assailants attacked a military barracks and prisons, freeing around 2,000 inmates, the authorities said. At least 19 people, comprising security forces and a civilian, died in the violence. The incident uh, was a failed attempted coup. The intention was to illegally subvert and overthrow a democratically elected government, information minister Chanel Ba uh, said this earlier today. The attempt failed, and plenty of the leaders are either in police custody or on the run. We will try to capture them and bring them to the full force of the laws of Sierra Leone. Thirteen military officers and one civilian uh, have uh, been uh, impacted uh, by uh, this disorder. Thirteen military officers and one civilian have been arrested. Uh, over the disorder, according to Mr. Barr. Although calm was largely restored to Freetown yesterday, shots were fired on earlier today in the Murraytown neighborhood. The police said this was part of an operation to apprehend perpetrators of Sunday's attack. No one was hurt in this incident, and a person of interest has, de- has been detained, officers said. The entire country uh, has been under a number of curfews since Sunday morning when men carrying heavy weaponry took to the streets of Freetown. The BBC witnessed some of the soldiers chanting that they planned uh, to clean Sierra Leone. The men stormed a military barrack uh, located close to the presidential residence then attempted unsuccessfully to take weapons from the armory. They also broke into a major prison in the capital Uh, The information minister said, video shared on social media shows several people fleeing from the areas of Freetown Central Padema Road Prison uh, on Sunday. 23 prisoners have been brought back, a report shared by prison officials with news agencies uh, also uh, reporting the same situation. Several countries in West and Central Africa are under military rule after a series of seizures of power. These include Sierra Leone's neighbor Guinea, as well as Mali, Niger, and Chad. The political situation in Sierra Leone has been tense since June uh, when President Julius Maada Bio was reelected, narrowly missing out on the need to have a runoff election. The result was rejected by the main opposition candidate and questioned by international partners, including the United States and the European Union. In August, a number of soldiers were arrested and accused accused of plotting a coup against the president. 
West African bloc, uh, the economic community of West African states, said earlier today it was primed to deploy regional support to strengthen national security in Sierra Leone. Similarly, uh, Nigerian National Security Advisor Malam Nuhu Rabadu warned that, quote, anything that will interfere with democracy, peace, security, and stability of Sierra Leone will not be accepted by ECOWAS and by Nigeria, end quote. And you can read more information about the security and political situation in the West African state of Sierra Leone by logging on to uh, the Pan-African News Wire. And in other news uh, taking place, uh, the United States appears to be blaming uh, Somalian pirates uh, for the attempted seizure of a vessel several days ago. The United States has said that a group of attackers who tried to seize an Israeli-linked cargo ship over the weekend were probably Somalian pirates rather than Ansarullah fighters from nearby Yemen. Speaking on Monday, Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Patrick Ryder noted that the U.S. has not ruled out the Ansarullah connection to the attempted hijacking by five armed men over the weekend. Quote, we're continuing to assess, but initial indications that these five individuals are Somalians, unquote, said Ryder. Quote, clearly a piracy-related incident, unquote, he added. Now, U.S. naval forces thwarted the capture of the tanker Central Park over the weekend after it was boarded by armed men who were captured after the U.S. warship Mason arrived on the scene. The attempted hijacking comes at a time when, uh, in Yemen, uh, resistance forces have carried out a series of raids on ships in the region. And the United States said ballistic missiles have been fired from the Ansarullah-controlled areas in the direction of U.S. ships shortly after the attack. And if you want to read more on this uh, situation in Yemen, uh, you can also log on to the Pan-African Newswire. And you're listening to the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In other news, Al Mahadeen's correspondence in Gaza confirmed that Israeli occupation forces violated the ceasefire by firing bullets in, north, in, in northern Gaza after a series of breaches. The Al Mahadeen correspondent in Gaza confirmed that Israeli occupation forces carried out uh, this uh, violation, particularly in the Sheikh Radwan neighborhood. The correspondent revealed that the occupation forces fired artillery and smoke shells west of Sheikh Radwan neighborhood during their withdrawal, aiming to cover their retreat from the central park of the neighborhood towards Rashid Street. Al Mahadeen, correspondent in the region, reported the Ministry of Health confirmation that the occupation forces are still refusing to allow the necessary fuel into hospitals in the northern areas. And finally, and also related uh, to uh, the situation in Palestine, Ramallah in the occupied West Bank, Israel has persisted with arresting dozens of Palestinians in the occupied West Bank and East Jerusalem as it conducts a prisoner release with Hamas, the Gaza-based armed group. In the first four days of the ongoing truce between Israel and Hamas, which began on Friday, Israel released 150 Palestinian prisoners. 117 were children and 33 were women. Hamas released 69 captives, 51 Israelis, and 18 people from other countries. Over the same four days, Israel arrested at least 
133 Palestinians from East Jerusalem and the West Bank, according to the Palestinian prisoner associations. Quote, as long as there is occupation, the arrest will not stop. People must understand this because this is a central policy of occupation against Palestinians and to restrict any kind of resistance, Amani Zerani, spokesperson for the Palestinian Prisoner Society, told the news agency Al Jazeera. With that, that we're going to conclude uh, the Pan-African Newswire segment of the Pan-African Journal. In concluding this segment of our program, we would like to remind our listeners that the Pan-African Newswire is an international electronic press service. It is designed to foster intelligent discussions on the affairs of African people throughout the continent and the world. The press agency was founded in January of 1998. Since that time period, the Pan-African Newswire has published tens of thousands of articles and dispatches in hundreds of newspapers, uh, magazines, journals, research reports, and on blogs and websites throughout the world. The Pan-African Newswire represents the only daily international news source on Pan-African and global affairs. If you'd like to log on to the Pan-African Newswire so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, all you need to do is go to our website, and that's at panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And if you'd like to have access to today's Pan-African Journal, this special worldwide radio broadcast for Tuesday, November 28, 2023, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network. That's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. We'll take a break. We'll be back with more of the Pan-African Journal for this week.
welcome back. And that was uh, the Jimi Hendrix Experience um, performing in the uh, studios of the British Broadcasting Corporation in 1967 during uh, the track entitled Burning of the Midnight Lamp. And uh, you're listening to the Pan-African Journal, special worldwide radio broadcast uh, for Tuesday, November 28th, uh, 2023. And yesterday, November 27th, represented the 81st uh, birthday of uh, Jimi Hendrix. And uh, we're paying tribute uh, to his uh, life, legacy, and artistry uh, here. Uh, Hendrix has a charting album out uh, as we speak. in the personage, uh, of course, of the Hollywood Bowl, con- the first Hollywood Bowl concert of August 1967. There was another one approximately a year later. And um, quite an interesting uh, project, uh, previously unreleased commercially. And uh, right now we want to move into our Palestine panel with the Electronic Intifada to discuss the 52nd day. Uh, of uh, the siege of Gaza. Let's listen in. Hello and welcome back to the Electronic Intifada's live stream for Monday, November 26th. I'm Nora Barrows-Friedman along with my colleagues Asa Wynn-Stanley, John Elmer, and Ali Abunima. Thank you all for joining us. It's day 52. Just in the last hour, the initial four-day hudna or truce was reported to have been extended for an additional two days under the same terms as the previous truce. What comes next is something we're going to be talking about, so please stay tuned. But over the weekend, a total of 58 captives held by Palestinian resistance forces in Gaza were released, and 117 Palestinians were released from Israeli prisons back to their families and homes in the occupied West Bank. The 117 are mostly children, part of a cohort that totals some 250 children and women imprisoned in Israel more than 80% of whom are being held without formal charges against them, held in what Israel calls administrative detention. We'll have an in-depth discussion during our broadcast today on the release of Palestinian women and children prisoners, as well as the release of Israeli and foreign captives later on in the show. Meanwhile, in the occupied West Bank, Israeli forces have continued mass arrest campaigns, raids, and killings. Al Jazeera reported that as 117 Palestinian women and children prisoners were released over the last three days, Israeli soldiers arrested 116 Palestinians across the West Bank during the same time period. And the UN says that at least 215 Palestinians, including 55 children, have been killed by Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank since October 7th. On Sunday, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu visited his occupying forces inside the Gaza Strip, the first time that an Israeli leader has stepped foot inside Gaza in nearly two decades. According to the New York Times, Netanyahu vowed that, quote, we are continuing until the end, until victory. Nothing will stop us. 
Before we go to our first guest, Mahmoud Nasser, let's uh, talk for a few minutes about the significance of the extension of the truce uh, and, and the ongoing release of prisoners. Ali and John, what do you make of this? Uh, Ali, let's let's start with you. It's, I'm sure, additional welcome relief for people in Gaza. We're hearing from everyone in Gaza that they want the truce extended. They want the truce to be permanent. No one wants to go back to the massacres and the bombing that Israel has been perpetrating for uh, 50 days, 50 days plus. It's unclear to me whether this extension is simply a temporary one or whether it is the prelude to something longer. Uh, there are different views on that, and I, I think the reality is no one knows. I think the thing we can say is that Israel doesn't seem to be backing down from claiming that it's going to continue to achieve its, its uh, aims in Gaza through military means, even though for the first 50-plus days it hasn't achieved anything militarily. Uh, it didn't release a single captive through uh, its military uh, attack on Gaza. It certainly hasn't uh, damaged Hamas. Hamas's military capabilities to any significant extent. I know we're going to talk more about that later. Yeah. Uh, but I think every hour, every day that people in Gaza get without being massacred from the air by American uh, bombs and airplanes is a good day. Exactly. Uh, John, what are your thoughts on um, the extension of the truce and, and what could come next? And, and we'll get into more of this later on, of course, but your first initial reaction. Yeah, I mean, I think it's good for the people of Gaza, for sure. Um, I think it's good for the prisoners who are getting out um, to have more children get out of prison. Um, the initial, the first stage of this didn't have all of the children being freed from prison. So, um, I think the hope is that um, if we can move deeper into um, the captives that fall into the category of this first exchange, the women and children, civilians, um, the non-soldiers, if you could say, um, the Israelis are talking about that number being upwards of 90 potentially uh, of people that would qualify uh, within this um, particular stage. So that would include... Um, at this point, we're getting uh, 13 Israelis a day um, for 39 Palestinian children in prison. So um, we're up to about 150 after today will have been released. Um, and so there's still more than 100 uh, children in Palestinian prison. So there's room for um, more of an exchange on this level. And of course, there's room on the ground to have the much needed humanitarian aid, which is part of this prisoner exchange, to be moved uh, and distributed throughout the Gaza Strip. So um, I think all, all the way around, I think it's a good thing. Yeah. All right. Well, we will get more into that uh, later on in the broadcast. Um, we are uh, going to be joined uh after Mahmoud by Chris Gunnis, who served as the spokesperson for UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees. Uh, but first, we do want to bring in Mahmoud Nasser. Mahmoud is a photographer and writer uh, who lives in Beit Lahia in the northern Gaza Strip. He was based in Gaza until just recently when Israel's genocidal campaign forced him and his family to leave. 
Mahmoud, thank you so much for being with us on the Electronic Intifada live stream. Thank you for having me. So tell us about uh, what you went through in Gaza uh, and, and what went into your decision to leave um, for now. It's almost indescribable, really, what we went through, you know, since uh, since the first moment we woke up, you know. it's uh, you, you can't really put it into words, you know. It's something like we never experienced, you know. I mean, I've lived in Gaza for quite a while, but I've never experienced a war of this magnitude, of this, uh, in terms of loss, uh, of life, of uh, infrastructure, of everything. Um, like as time went by, you know, it's, uh, it became obvious that I cannot really stay there. You know, um, we had to, we had to leave me, my family, my wife was, um, pregnant, you know, she couldn't really put up with, uh, being at camp, you know, at lack of food and sanitation and clean water. So we had to gather ourselves up and having like a Canadian citizenship sort of, um, allowed us an opportunity to exit. But that exit, unfortunately, came with um, lots of difficulty, you know, emotional difficulty, you know. It's, uh, the, the, you, you feel like an immense guilt, you know, leaving. It's, it's kind of weird to think about, you know, anybody in that situation would want to leave the first opportunity they have. But uh, the moment you do, the moment you're in a hotel, you know, after being in a camp for two weeks, it, it feels strange. And very you feel very guilty you know it's, it's like it's all your families your relatives your friends they're still stuck and but you get to carry out your normal life and it's like you can't even come to terms with these thoughts and these ideas you know you um published uh just a few days ago we published a photo story a photo essay of yours um and just really stark moving images that you captured um on your way out of Gaza. Can you talk a little bit about maybe some of these photos that you took? Um, there's this first one just at the top of kind of a very empty courtyard um, and, and mm-hmm. two people with suitcases. Can you talk a little bit about what was going on there and, and what was happening when you took this photo? This was uh, the last, you know, the last moment. Uh, this was, this photo is essentially just portrays everything that I felt in that in, in that in that brief moment, you know. This was you're leaving Gaza, it it feels empty, you know, the picture everything looks empty. Typically there would be no two people, it would be full in a regular day, you know, without war. This kind of picture you never really see. So this was it, like two people with suitcases, they're walking towards the gate, you know, they're leaving Gaza. You know, they're saying they're leaving everything behind. And you can see they only have two suitcases. You know, they're lucky they have a suitcase. Some people left with a backpack, like myself and the majority of my family. Um, yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's kind of a, a strange reality. And um, as I was leaving, I sort of I felt like I had to document the, this experience, you know, in the best way that I can. But being in, like, a place like this, it's you're not... Um, you can't freely pick up your camera and take pictures, so I had to be sneaky. Uh, mm. And some of these pictures, you know, some of them I took with my phone. Um, and here in this picture, you see uh, the, the border police, the Palestinian side, the stamping the passports. And it was uh, quite the trip 
for us, um, we were actually really scared for our wives because we weren't sure if they were going to cross, you know, seeing that they don't have citizenship abroad. Um, my brother's fiance didn't even have a passport. She had only a Palestinian ID. Um, alhamdulillah, things, things, you know, went smoothly and we were able to leave. Mahmoud, how, how was the, uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. H- how was the reception from the Egyptian side, both the officials and any people you encountered? And also, did you receive any assistance from the Canadian government as Canadians in order to to get out of Gaza? I mean, now we're not, re- we don't receive any sort of assistance, but at the, the moment you left, the uh, they took care of the the visas to enter Egypt. They took care of transportation, as well as three days stay in a hotel, and uh, they sort of facilitated the the visa process. They expedited the entire process in a matter of a couple of days. I mean, so they helped us with that. But um, I mean, I appreciate <laughs> whatever they did to help us leave, but. Um, they're still in some way, like they're connected to this in one way or another, right? Um, tell us a little bit about what uh, what your daily life was like in Gaza before uh, Israel started carpet bombing, um, and 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 why you decided not to, you know, live in Canada, but to to live in Gaza with your family. Um, life was beautiful. It was uh, it was a simple life, you know. Gaza is somewhat behind in so many ways uh, compared to the rest of the world, you know. And like I'm a simple guy, I don't like a complicated life, and so it sort of fit very well with uh, my nature. And uh, just it's part of uh, my childhood, you know. It's uh, your relatives. It's something you can't replace. You can't find any other place. You know, your uncles, your childhood friends, the, the same street you walked at when you were a child, just just seeing those those things, you know, they, they make you want, want to go there, they make you want to live there. And uh, sort of like also seeing that Gaza is what it is, you know, you sort of want to help. You know, having lived in Canada, you have a degree, you have a, you have a potential to help your country, to help your cause in any way possible. And I sort of saw it as a, like a calling, you know. I, I I had to go there. I wanted to go there. I wanted to capture my my country in a way that, you know, according to my eye, according to the way that I saw things. And um, it's just uh, it's a beautiful place to live in. You know, we had a business. Um, I was a tennis coach. I and I did freelance photography also. And it's. <laughs> just everything about Gaza is, is amazing, but I don't know if I can say the same about it now because it's it seems like everything has changed. You know, it's the, same, the things that we loved, um, the things that I loved when I was there, I don't think they're still there anymore. You know, that's, uh, you, uh, Mahmoud, you were living in Beit Lahia in the north, Beit Hanun. Beit Hanun, which is uh, Beit Lahia is very close to Beit yeah, Hanun. Yeah, in Beit Hanun. Um, Tell us about Beit Hanun, and of course, Beit Hanun was in the, let's say, it, uh, it's right, it's very close to the boundary with Israel. So, mm-hmm. what, 
how did you first experience the war and, and where did you go? What was the course of your lives during the uh, Israeli attack these past few weeks? Well, generally, Beit Hanun is um, always the first place that gets hit in every war. It's the first place that has to evacuate, and it's the, the, the place that gets damaged and destroyed the most. In 2014, I lost, we lost our generation home in Beit Hanun um, due to the war. The, when this war broke out, I wasn't in Beit Hanun. My father was there. I was with my wife in Gaza. We have an apartment uh, near the Almina. And uh, we were, the, the moment the war broke out, me and my brother were neighbors. We sort of had to decide where, what do we do? Do we go to Beit Hanun to stay with my father or do we bring my dad to us? And uh, we were confused. Do we go? Do we not go? You know, we didn't know what to do. But eventually my dad ended up coming to Gaza. You know, now thinking about... To Gaza City. Yeah, to Gaza City. Now thinking about what transpired... Um, Days later, it was a great decision because Beit Hanun was the first place to evacuate, and it, it got hit really hard. And had we gone, had we gone there, um, you don't know what would have happened, you know. You you stayed in Gaza City, but at a certain at a certain point, you said that you had to move to a shelter. Yeah. At what point did that happen, and what was going on around you? Everything just happened uh, so quick at the beginning, you know. The war started three days later. We evacuated. They um, um, just, it's quiet during the war. The streets are very quiet. There's absolutely no noise. And the second you start to hear the murmuring, the chatter in the streets, you know something is wrong. People are going to evacuate, you know. And my dad heard it, and he started screaming, we got to evacuate. Everybody's got to leave. We took our bags, and we left. We went to our family restaurant where all of our other relatives who, who left Beit Hanun, and they were also staying there. That, and that same day, we, we went to the United Nations headquarters. Um, my dad knew a few people there. He also used to work there back in uh, 2019. And so we stayed at the United Nations for a few days, around a week. And then we had to evacuate again, as you know, um, when the IDF ordered um, everybody in the north to evacuate south. Um, all the uh, the INGOs and the UNRWA and the UN employees, they were the first people to get uh, the notification that they have to evacuate. And it's from that moment we left south. And uh, from there we lived in one apartment and then we went to another apartment. And then from there it got crazy. Bombing kept getting closer and closer um, around us in Khan Yunus. And then we made the decision to, to go to the camp, you know. It was... Uh, uh, it's cramped, it's tough, it's hard to sleep on the ground, but at least we felt somewhat safe. And then talk about Mahmoud. In the camp, did people have access to food? Was UNRWA present? Were, were, were there rations being given out? What about water, medical care? What conditions are people in in the camp you were at? Uh, this was near Khan Yunus. Yes, this was in Khan Yunus. That's, uh, okay. Um, this is the, essentially the biggest camp, you know, it's around 40,000 people and every day new people kept coming in. The conditions, uh, they were really tough, really, really tough, you know. Um, there's no space for anybody to prop up a new tent, you know. So they would come in, you would see many people just sleeping on the pavement. 
just underground. Um, the water situation was hard. Uh, there was no clean water whatsoever. Like drinking filtered water was a luxury for a certain moment. Um, there was no food rations. We got whatever uh, was uh, allowed in um, at the border, whatever support, whatever humanitarian aid was allowed in. This is what we got. And as every day went by, food became more scarce. Uh, on the day that I left Gaza, there was no salt. There was no uh, chickpeas. There was fried uh, legumes and stuff. They ran out. Um, and the bread situation was, was really hard. There's no gas. Um, and flour became almost rare. You know, it's so hard to get your hand, hands on flour to, to bake bread. Um, and you couldn't even buy it because lines extend for hours and hours. You have to go at dawn and wait 12 hours to get a chance at getting um, a bread that would last you for one day. And then this is a process that has to repeat every day. Yeah. And getting water, you have to do that every day. It's, it's a kind of stress that's unimaginable. You know, Waking up every day thinking, how am I going to get bread? How am I going to get water? How am I going to uh, you know, ensure that I'm safe? You know, it's the kinds of things that um, a human being, the human mind is not supposed to endure for uh, 52 days. And then, uh, Mahmoud, one of the uh, standard claims that you'll hear American and Canadian and British and European politicians say is that Hamas is a terrorist organization. Uh, the Palestinian people are completely innocent of uh, Hamas, and uh, we distinguish between the two. Uh, and they believe that by bombing Gaza, by murdering civilians, that they will drive a wedge between the resistance and the Palestinian people in Gaza. Um, is that a realistic view? Are they... For, you having lived in Gaza all these years and then over the past 50 days, what can you say about where people's minds are in this indescribable situation, one that, that no one who hasn't been through it can really understand? But what was your impression of, of how people in Gaza are reacting to everything that was happening? I mean, they would react like any person who attack, is attacked would react, you know. Um, they feel, I mean, whenever there are rockets, you know, they would go up, like Palestinian resistance rockets, they would go. Whenever they're launched, they, you hear always like a roar in the camp. People are happy. They're happy because they're fighting back in, in one way. It's sort of a moral reaction. Um, but deep down, everybody felt broken, you know. They, they, I wouldn't say hopeless. It's just something that they never lose hope, you know, the people in Gaza. But um, it was hard. Um, I mean, I don't want to, I don't, like, I'm not sure how much of them supported the war, how much of them supported Hamas, but uh, this is like a human thing. This is about the people, and the people, they were all present. Not a single one person was sort of just happy about everything that's going on. You know, they've, they've lost homes, they've lost loved ones, they've lost their future. Um, almost every person that I met 
at the camp, just like take me with you. You know, they would say, like, like yeah, I don't want to be here after the war. I want to leave. I don't want to stay here. I don't want to stay here. Um, and it's just, uh, it breaks your heart to see all these kids that, you know, always dreamt of being something in Gaza, have that being robbed from them, you know, um, to such a scale, you know like a nationwide scale, entire entire population got sick of what's happening to the point where just many of them would actually tell me that dying actually felt better than surviving, feeling like you're gonna die every day, you know. You know this war is, for, for, for the people, it, it was different than everything else. This is unmistakably different, you know. It's, uh, everyone felt like a victim, everybody felt like a target. I felt like a target for 38 days. Any time I went to a supermarket, I had to sort of watch out. I have to look up. Um, I, I was worried. I was scared. My wife was scared for me. Um, and just feeling like you're a target when you've done nothing. You're just, you're just a person. You're just a human being. You know, going about things, living your life, working, taking care of your family, and and then all of a sudden you feel like you you could die. Somebody could kill you, and it's. Uh, it's kind of a hard prospect to to accept, but we did, and we lived through it. And uh, those who survived are still trying to keep fighting, and those who left, like myself, um, I don't know. This feels weird. Yeah, Mahmoud, uh, let's look at uh, another photo essay that that we published on the Electronic Intifada of yours. Um, and this one you specifically focused on children. Um, mm -hmm. Can you uh, talk about what, yeah, The Cursed Fate of Gaza's Children is, is the name of the photo essay. And this was published uh, about three weeks ago. Um, what do you know about the kids that you photographed? Um, have you been able to keep in touch with any of them or their families? Do you know their fate, uh, the, the ones that you met on the streets? All I know is none of them will have a chance to leave. That's, this is a certain. Um, because from what I know, from the time that I spent with them, they don't have any passports. They don't have anybody outside that has a passport that can sponsor them. So effectively speaking, they're just stuck, you know, they're, they're still at the camp, they're still putting up with the worsening situation, you know, that happened daily, um, and their chances at life are sort of diminishing, you know, because even when the war ends, there won't be any schools, there won't be any playgrounds, there wouldn't be, there will be nothing to do, they won't have their own home, and even the smile on that little girl's face, maybe on the day that she goes home and she's she asked her dad, where's my house? And what is her dad going to say? And there will be no smiling, you know. Uh, I, I don't think the fate is just... Just, just <laughs> continue to survive. Um, um, all, everything has been robbed away from them, everything. You know, usually kids, as I mentioned in the story, the kids are innocent, you know. They don't know anything. They don't even understand the, the idea of racism or the idea of politics. They don't even understand what this war is or why it happened. 
they're just a free souls, but uh, free souls outside of Gaza. In Gaza, they're not free. They, they, they don't live the life of what a kid should live. And uh, unfortunately, they have to accept this reality, you know. And but what can they do? I mean, they're just truly stunning photographs um, of these of these kids. You know, these these children that um, that Israel is uh, perfectly content with carpet bombing and traumatizing for generations. I mean, this is a generational trauma, mm. uh, multi generational, and it didn't just happen. You know, six weeks ago, of course, this was this has been seventy five years of of unending brutal trauma for these kids. Um, you mentioned that your your wife is pregnant. Can you talk about the future that you want your your child to have? I mean, I always wanted to raise my child in Gaza. You know, it's uh, that's what I I'm, when I get married, my wife sort of wanted uh, to to live a better life outside. But I told her, you know, it's, I want my kid to to be brought up here to experience the life somewhat the kind of life that I experienced growing up. You know, I want I want the kid to meet their uncles and uh, I want them to play outside and I want them to go to the sea, you know, like we went to the sea. And I want them to have falafel, you know, and I just wanted them to grow up, learn the language, understand their culture and just uh, be a part of that amazing place. But uh, <laughs> things have changed, you know. And um, I would go back to Gaza in the drop of a dime. I would go in a, in a heartbeat. But um, there has to be some guarantees this time. You know, I don't want to go through what I went through again. It's sort of, uh, I, I told my wife, you know, I was like, I don't want you to feel this. Like, I don't want to, I don't want you to ever to have to go through this ever again. Um, because, you know, just looking at her, you know, for those 38 days, every day she would ask me, um, is there a truce? Is there a truce? When is the truce? Or is it going to end? <laughs> and I, uh, I just tell her, oh, no, just relax. Just uh, things are fine. You know, we're alive. Just relax. It will happen. And that's, that's, uh, that's it. Uh, Mahmoud Nasser, you're a photojournalist, a tennis instructor, and um, a contributor to the, e- the Electronic Intifada. I, I want to keep you on um, while we bring on our next guest. Um, uh, we, uh, we have Chris Gunnis with us. Chris served as spokesperson for UNRWA, the UN Agency for Palestine Refugees, for more than a decade. Uh, he stepped down in 2019. Chris became a familiar figure to television viewers during Israel's 2014 attack on Gaza, and throughout his tenure, he was under constant assault from anti-Palestinian lobby groups. Chris, it's so good to have you with us on today on the live stream. Um, You know, we always wish it were under better circumstances, but thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're you're muted, Chris. (laughs) Sorry. I was just saying it's a real pleasure to reconnect with Nora, yourself and Ali and colleagues from the Electronic Intifada after so long. So thank you so much for having me. It's a a real joy. Thank you. Mm, Thanks. 
Um, your your thoughts on what we just heard from Mahmoud and um, oh, yeah. you know, um, it, it sort of reminds you that there is this humanity in Gaza, um, and and what he has to say, and the manner in which he says it, and the dignity, it sort of gives you hope that there is a future for Gaza. And you know, when you hear him say, "I would go back to Gaza um, with a drop of a dime and in a heartbeat," you think, "Wow." You know, there is some hope. Um, but, you know, I have to say one has to pinch oneself and return to reality. And, you know, I just, before I came on air with you guys, read the latest UNRWA update. And, you know, 187 trucks have gone in since the 25th of November. Um, the Israelis are allowing no aid trucks to go north at all, um, where at least 40, if not much more, that we know of, percent of the homes have been destroyed. And before the 7th of October, and was getting in 500 trucks a day. So if you do the math, it's getting in about a tenth of what it needs. Um, 1.7 million people, according to this update, have been displaced. Many of them will have no homes to go back to. Um, and over a million of them have taken refuge in UNRWA shelters. So the South, which you know we were told would be a safe area, um, it's not safe. And I've got friends who evacuated from... Um, Gaza City um, after a couple of weeks. They went south to stay with an uncle and they said that the night they got there, um, 20 civilian tower blocks were completely demolished. Um, and you know what then happened, actually, just to finish off the story, um, two of them, the, the, the sister of a very good friend of mine, her husband and his son went to stay with their in-laws in Musterat in the south because the parents were so frightened. And the night they got there, um, a massive missile struck the house. I mean, my friend said, you don't hit a house, an apartment block with something that massive unless you intend to kill everyone there. And what happened is that they heard, the family who hadn't gone with the relatives heard what had happened. My friend's brother went to the hospital um, near Nusayrat. Um, the morgues were overflowing. Um, he'd been told that his nephew was still alive. He looked at all the faces in the drawers in the morgue, but then had to go to the car park and was literally uncovering sheets and shrouds to recognize his nephew. He then found him, and as he said to his sister, I was really pleased his body was in one piece. He then carried the limp corpse of his nephew through this war zone to present it to his sister, who was waiting for news of her son, and he just had to say, here is your son. And that was the eldest um, grandchild in the family. So, you know, as well as all these statistics that UNRWA puts up, um, you know, there are each, there are all these individual stories. But as I say, hearing Mahmoud speak, you know, it touches me so deeply because you really feel that, you know, ultimately somehow, and we don't know what the Israeli game plan is. I mean, we don't even know if there is an Israeli game plan. At the moment, it seems that they're hell-bent on complete destruction and the ethnic cleansing and the forcing of people from Gaza into the Sinai, goodness knows if they will be allowed to do that. I mean, if the, if the, the truce holds, I think for every day it holds, the pressure builds um, against that. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, you know, I remember you know, in 1982 what happened is Sharon wanted to invade Lebanon and he had to sort of take the cabinet along with him and there was resistance. And I sort of feel that that's what's going on now in Israel, that Netanyahu has a plan, um, probably a very extreme plan, and there are all of these forces, some international, some others, sort of pulling him back. So, 
you know, it's so interesting, too, that, you know, we were told Netanyahu was going in to defeat Hamas. And here we are today. I mean, notwithstanding all the things which Ali was saying earlier um, about the fact that no military infrastructure was destroyed, that no single hostage was released as a result of Israeli military action, we now have a situation where this organization, which Netanyahu told us he was going in to destroy, and Western leaders said, let's hold off the ceasefire until this organization is destroyed, that organization now has the fate of Mr. Netanyahu in, his ha- in their hands mm-hmm. because they can mess around with hostages. You know, the whole of Israel, as with the Shalit, um, Gilad Shalit, Corporal Shalit, um, you know, between 2005 and 11, and the whole of Israel is sort of looking at these, this moment and, you know, Netanyahu is under huge pressure. But it's Hamas who ultimately can control that. And so, you know, what a massive clanging irony that the man who told us he was going to destroy Hamas, his political future is now in the hands of Hamas. And of course, that speaks to a much bigger, massive lie, which Israel told the world. But because it's got its messaging out there so early in this conflict, which very much reminds me, by the way, of what I went through personally in 2014, because Israel got its messages out so quickly, the world went along with this fiction that Hamas could be destroyed. And people like Mark Regev, you know, they started using this phrase Hamas-ISIS. It's like, do you not remember that on the 30th of, of January 2006, Hamas won a massive landslide victory in an election which the Carter Center described as the freest and fairest election in the history of the Middle East, which I suppose also includes elections in Israel. So, you know, all these <laughs> sort of insane ironies clanging around. But at the back, you know, I take away Mahmoud's extraordinary story, you know, a tennis coach and a freelance photographer who says to his pregnant wife, I would go back in a heartbeat. Mm-hmm. You know, thank you, Mahmoud. Chris, mm-hmm. you... Uh, you made reference to 2014, and of course, until the horrifying events of the last few weeks, 2014 was the most violent uh, spasm yes. of Israeli uh, violence against people of Gaza, uh, concentrated in a short period of time. The violence is constant, I, I want to make that clear, but in terms of one of these wars, and uh, it, it, over a, over a period of 51 days, Israel killed uh, more than 2,200 Palestinians in 2014, including 551 children. And that was a dreadful toll. It now pales compared with what Israel has done in these last 50 or so days, where it's perhaps 10 times as many people killed because thousands of people are still missing under the rubble. And uh, the number of children is, is uh, over five, six, seven thousand. I don't even know what the last number is because it keeps going up so fast and the number of missing is also increasing. So uh, the scale of it is just incomprehensible. But uh, you went through it in 2014 and people, some people will remember, I I certainly do, uh, that that you very famously broke down in tears in uh, at the end of an interview on Al Jazeera in 2014. And you could tell just the the feeling you had of, of empathy and despair 
but I'd like to ask you what you think people on the ground who are trying to help, not just those who are trying to survive with their families, as, as Mahmoud described, but people who are uh, uh, Palestinians, as we know, UNRWA, for example, the vast majority of its workers are Palestinians, even if the, the, some of the better known names are international officials like the Commissioner General or, or yourself. But what would they be going through now from your experience in terms of trying to, to keep some kind of system of support going? I mean, the simple answer is pure hell. Um, I mean, I've been talking to colleagues really very frequently during um, the whole, you know, the last, you know, since 2000, since um, October uh, the 7th. And, you know, UNRWA is in Gaza, it's over 10,000 staff, you know, 13,000, I think, is the figure today. It was about 12,000 when I left. Um, and they are mainly teachers, um, they are health workers, they run 20-something primary health clinics, um, over 200 schools. Um, they are people who have given their lives to humanitarianism. They are people who are embedded in their communities, you know, they are, the people who work for UNRWA are Palestine refugees, they're part of that community. And the reason they can't flee and run away you know, if this were an, an aid organization like you know, Oxfam or Save the Children, they'd be doing everything they could to get their people out. But the people who work for UNRWA are themselves Palestine refugees. And they sense, they feel this sort of, this repeating Nakba, you know, every time, um, yet again, they're seeing their communities dismantled by aggression, you know, um, this time Israeli aggression. And so there's this wider sense, that I think Mahmoud expressed beautifully, of a sense of your horizons and your children's horizons, your political futures just being ripped away. And that's not just day to day. There's nothing to do. I mean, there was always nothing to do in Gaza or very little to do for, for many people in Gaza before. There was 46 plus unemployment in Gaza. Um, but, you know, now, as, as Mahmoud said, that little girl will ask her father, you know, when are we going back home? And he'll have to say, you know, we don't have a home. So, you know, for people within UNRWA, there's the broader long-term picture, which is yet another Nakba being, per being perpetrated on them and their societies. Um, then, you know, closing the circle a bit, there are them in their immediate communities. Um, the refugee camps in the north, I mean, Jabalia, Beit Lahia, their beach camp, you know, very largely um, completely gone. And so UNRWA staff members and others will see their immediate physical environment just completely carpet bombed. I mean, it's gone. Um, closing the circle further, those in their immediate professional environs, the, the teachers in the schools where they work, well, many of them will be dead. I remember after 2014, one of the most gut-wrenching things that happened was they had a roll call at the start of the school year, which had been delayed because so many people had taken refuge in UNRWA shelters, far fewer actually than today. And they had a roll call simply to say, to find out who was dead or alive. So these little children in these UNRWA schools simply have to sort of hear a silence when, you know, their friend might have said yes. You know, so, so that has to be, um, that has to be gone through at a certain stage. And then, you know, there's their own families and their own communities. And I told the story of my UNRWA colleague, um, I, I've, I've had dinner at their house, which has now been completely destroyed. I know them all very well. Um, you know, they, their family's been destroyed. Um, you know, they've lost, you know, many loved ones. In this case, um, Ala, my friend, her, um, her nephew and her mother's eldest grandchild 
um, has been killed, um, most of their in-laws on um, her, her brother-in-law's side um, have been killed, and they're scarred for life. I mean, Nora was talking about intergenerational trauma. Um, it is, and actually, you know, the first Gaza war I saw was 2007-2008, and when the next violence erupted, people, particularly children, were re-traumatized because they were going through the present trauma and then the trauma from the previous conflict. This is the fifth or sixth, depending how you measure them. So children, you know, over the age of about 12, 13, this is the fifth or sixth time they're being re-traumatized. Um, and I mean, the other horrifying thing that's going on now is that there are many children who are waking up, you know, from whatever has happened to them to discover that they're the sole surviving member of their family or that there are two of them and their brother, who's perhaps a bit older than them or sister, is now permanently disabled. So, you know, as far as UNRWA is concerned, um, they are all deep in crisis. They've lost 108 colleagues, and I'm sure that, as with all death figures, death tolls, it's far higher. There are many UNRWA colleagues lying underneath rubble. Um, and, you know, it, it's, it's undoubtedly the case that UNRWA is going through an existential crisis, not just in terms of the physical existences of each staff member. And, you know, as Mahmoud said, you, you walk around Gaza, you've got a big target on your back looking to the sky. You feel as if you're going to be killed. Um, so, you know, I don't know what the future of UNRWA will be. I mean, it gets its mandate from the General Assembly. Um, so at some stage, the General Assembly will have to sit down and work out, um, you know, what that mandate will be. But as ever with UNRWA, the mandate of UNRWA is dependent really on the wider politics, um, which is all about where the Palestinian refugees stand. And then beyond that, the question of funding for UNRWA. And generally under Trump, we saw the wholesale um, cutting off of funds from UNRWA. When I was there, it was about 400 million that, you know, the check didn't arrive one day in the post. And we suddenly realized we had a massive um, gap in our, um, in our funding, in our, our, our budget. And it may be that when this is over, if Netanyahu and co have decided that they just want to create a massive refugee camp in the Sinai, um, you know, here we go again. <laughs> Another young book, perhaps, you know, creating yeah. a massive... Sorry, Ali, yes, I'm... I'm yeah, sorry. no, no, that you, you touch on an important point, and, and you're no longer with the UN, uh, or I don't know, I, I, you're no longer with UNRWA, no. right. No. And, I, and I don't want to put you on the spot, because you, you have... Um, uh, you, you know, you're someone I think many of us can identify uh, who has really a passionate um, connection and support for the Palestinian people and for uh, the, the humanitarian values that uh, are supposed to animate the United Nations, that lie behind the, the very founding principles of the United Nations. There's a couple of things I want to get your reaction to. One is that very early on uh, in this war, we heard criticism for, from some of the UNRWA workers, and we're talking about the Palestinian UNRWA workers, the teachers, the, the people who are running shelters, the medical staff. They were critical of UNRWA for abandoning the north of the Gaza Strip very early on, they, what they accused uh, the UNRWA leadership of doing was basically following the orders of Israel and, and getting out instead of refusing, as some of the hospital staff did, 
uh, you know, the, the medical teams at the various hospitals in the north did. Uh, and they said, you know, we, we, we had expected a stronger stance from the UNRWA leadership in terms of refusing to go along with these Israeli evacuation orders that were, in a sense, death sentences when you think about how you're going to evacuate thousands or tens of thousands of people, many of whom might be infirm or disabled or elderly or very young and so on. That's one thing I want to get your reaction to, if you feel comfortable giving it. And, and the other is about the UN more generally. I want to give you an example, a couple of examples about UN, about UN leadership. Antonio Guterres, the current Secretary General, uh, I think he eventually did. I, I mean, at some point I stopped paying close attention. But he took forever. He refused to call for a ceasefire. And yeah. uh, UN officials, there seems to be a policy by UN agencies, and we, we uh, published a story about this some time ago, that, that talks about Palestinians dying as if they were hit by a hurricane or a tsunami and never mentioning who killed them, while at the same time, Antonio Guterres, among others, ha take every Israeli claim at face value. They never say, well, we need an independent inquiry into what happened on October 7th about all these allegations. They just take whatever Israel says as if it's unquestionable truth, while refusing to name Israel as the killer in, uh, in, in, in many circumstances when, they, uh, when Israel is undeniably the killer in Gaza. And a final thing, a final point on the UN, and then I'm just going to throw it to you for your reaction to all this, is the UN has a special office dedicated to preventing genocide. And they actually have uh, an assistant secretary general or a special uh, advisor, you know, I, I don't know what all the titles are, uh, who have not made a single statement regarding the situation in Gaza. I, I assume that the word prevent genocide means that you're not supposed to wait until there is an actual genocide in order to speak out. You know, yeah. so, so it's not about... Is it a genocide or not? I think it clearly is, and many, many authorities have said so. But even if the UN Office for the Prevention of Genocide didn't think what happened in Gaza had reached a genocide, shouldn't they be speaking out before it gets to a genocide since their mandate is to prevent genocide? What do you think? Are all these criticisms of the UN fair or unfair? What's your reaction as someone who had worked in the UN uh, and, and dealt with some of these matters from the inside for many years. And if I may, I'll deal with your questions in reverse order. And they're all very, very good and extremely important questions. Um, on the question of genocide, um, there were a group of rapporteurs, they call them. So the UN has thematic rapporteurs. So there's one on housing. There's one specifically on um, the situation of human rights in the occupied Palestinian territory, which her, her name is Francesca Albanese. Full disclosure, she's a good friend of mine. And I think, given the huge pressures on her, she's doing a pretty creditable job. And a group of them, of those thematic rapporteurs, got together a couple of weeks ago, and they put out a joint statement. 
Um, and by the way, Francesca was someone who called for a ceasefire pretty much immediately, but she's an independent rapporteur, so she will tell you herself she doesn't have a huge amount of political influence in the system. So there was, and the interesting thing about the Genocide Convention, which they pointed out in the statement, and these are international lawyers who understand the Genocide Convention as it's called, it calls on signatory states to prevent genocide. So. Well, I mean, you can get into an argument about whether there is genocide, and I would argue that there is a genocide. Um, genocide, just to conclude that thought, has two parts. There's, under their own statute, there are actual specific crimes, deliberate murder, um, mass um, um, displacement, um, etc., etc., depriving populations of humanitarian assistance. These things are all the individual acts that make up genocide, and we can safely say that pretty much all of those things have been going on. Um, on the other side, there's genocidal intent. Now, you know, Hitler wrote Mein Kampf, so it wasn't hard to prove that he intended to kill six million Jews. Um, but when you look at what Benjamin Netanyahu said about Amalek, right, killing all women, babies, children, the elderly. When you look at what the defense minister said about human animals, when you look at what the president said, that there was no way to distinguish ordinary civilians in Gaza with Hamas terrorists. When you look at what the minister who said, let's drop a nuclear bomb on Gaza said, I know that's very much you know, disputed and you know, he's been disciplined and all that. But the fact is that when you want to try and prove genocidal intent, which is the other part of how you fight a genocide case, um, you only have to Google it. It's not difficult. Um, so, you know, that is very clear. So if, if any of the member states who are signatories to the Genocide Convention wanted to take action, there would be no shortage of evidence. And a group of very senior UN rapporteurs, you may say belatedly, it could have happened earlier, um, but they've, they've made it very clear um, that as far as they're concerned, um, there is a genocide going on and that member states under the Genocide Convention have an obligation to protect. So you can get into an argument about whether there's genocidal intent, is there a genocide. In a way, that's irrelevant. What they're saying is there is an obligation on member states to prevent. And as far as I'm concerned, they should. Genocide is one of the four international crimes defined by the Rome Statute. Um, the ICC is investigating um, the OPT. Um, an investigation is open, and what should happen, in my view, is under the Rome Statute, when there is enough evidence, um, the court can decide to issue arrest warrants. That's what they did with Putin and his child protection czar, or whatever title she had. And so it is perfectly legitimate, legal. The frameworks are there for arrest warrants to be issued. And by the way, they can be issued against people on both sides. And if you're going to start talking about international humanitarian law, I'm very firmly of the view that it should be applied universally and to all. And I think you're on a hiding to nothing if you start saying it shouldn't apply to Hamas or Islamic Jihad, whereas it should apply to the Israeli army. I think that everyone should have the dignity of accountability and justice. That's part of a stable society. So um, as far as the genocide question yeah. is concerned, and, I think... And just on that, yeah, Chris, just on that, just to, to clarify, you're right, there was the statement from the special rapporteurs uh, that um, came out uh, earlier this month, I believe, in which they... A couple of weeks ago, yeah. yeah. a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, uh, it was in November, uh, in which they... Uh, 
did clearly warn about genocide, and I think that was a very important statement. But just to clarify, what I'm talking about is the UN Office on Genocide Prevention and the Responsibility to Protect, and this is headed by uh, Ms. Wairimu Deritu. So this is an actual special uh, office. It's not a special rapporteur. This is actually a, a UN, UN department. And so just to be clear that the, the, that office and that um, undersecretary, I'm not sure what the correct title is, it's uh, undersecretary general and special advisor to UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres on the prevention of genocide. That office has said, Nothing. And I just wanted to clarify that. But I do want to, us to hear your answers on the other uh, two issues that I raised, John, uh, uh, Chris, ra rather about... Um, yeah, about, about so the UNSG. Yeah. yeah, the UNSG and the... Just to say, I mean, if there really has been no statement um, from this office, that is absolutely disgraceful. And I'm, you know, I, I hope if they listen to this program, um, that they will realize that that is, I think, an abrogation of their responsibilities, and they clearly do need to start talking about it. But the fact is that if anyone decides to move to a criminal prosecution, and I now work on Myanmar and run an organization which has four cases around the world, which is bringing criminal prosecutions against war criminals from Myanmar, and what you have to do is collect evidence. Well, you know, there are 13,000 UNRWA staff and others who are collecting evidence. And, you know, in 2014, we had this evidence and there wasn't a political will to move to an ICC investigation, partly because the ICC had not, had, the, the, sorry, the, the PLO, the, the Palestinians, had not accepted the jurisdiction of the court. Now, today, we are in a completely different zone where the jurisdiction of the court has been accepted by the Palestinians. The court has opened an investigation. So it is perfectly possible the frameworks are there for a genocide investigation to take place, a war crimes investigation to take place, a crimes against humanities um, investigation to take place. So I, I don't know what the UN is planning, but I think that there is pressure because I've spoken to you know, some of these rapporteurs um, and I think that pressure is going to mount for um, a major investigation and some kind of criminal prosecution. And by the way, the ICC is only one locus for accountability. That's, you know, the place where um, it's, it's an international court, but in individual jurisdictions, so for example, in the UK, um, you know, Britain has signed the Genocide Convention. There are plenty, there are 150 signatories to the Genocide Convention. Um, the Rome Statute has 123, I believe, members who signed up to the Rome Statute. Each of those, if they can find a national nexus, a link, um, will have the ability, if they want, to push for cases against specific uh, members of the Israeli Army and Air Force for criminal accountability. And the same is true for Hamas, by the way. So sort of never say never. I mean, I worked in the Balkans a long, long time ago. And believe me, when Milosevic and Karadzic and Mladic had set up their death camps against Bosnian Muslims, we were all horrified. And, you know, decades later, when it became clear that Serbia wanted to join the EU, um, and that they said, hand over Milosevic and Karadzic or you can't join. They became politically dispensable and they were handed over. Of course, you know, 300,000 Bosnians had been killed and, you know, it, it came far too late. The wheels of international justice turn very slowly, but they do turn. 
and now we have a mechanism and we have the evidence on the ground, we have plenty of proof when this is over for the world to move to criminal prosecutions. And I urge those mechanisms and I fervently hope that the people of Gaza, people like Mahmoud, you know, they will be in grief for a long time, but I know from my work in Myanmar that part of dealing with grief successfully, and it's difficult, is seeing justice, truth, and recon not reconciliation, truth and accountability, and perhaps reconciliation, who knows, but that is a very important part of your psychological journey when you're deep in grief. Now, to look at the other parts of your question, um, Ali, um, the UNSG, yes, it was appalling that he spoke up too late. This is the world's number one diplomat heading up an organization which is so deeply involved in Palestine um, and with Palestine refugees and with all of these issues. So it was utterly condemnable that it took so long for him to speak up. Of course, we know why. You know, America pays for over 20% of the UN, including Antonio Guterres' salary. So everyone is you know, beholden, he who pays the piper, etc. Um, and so there was very little moral courage whatsoever. Um, and eventually, actually, when he did speak up, he said, this didn't happen in a vacuum, there is a context. And the Israelis came down on him like a ton of bricks. In fact, the Israeli ambassador said it was a blood libel. You know, so, I mean, I know what that feels like. I mean, I remember when Ron Prother, who was the Israeli ambassador to the UN, wrote an open letter to the USG calling for me to be dismissed and investigated. I mean, it didn't speak, stop me speaking out. And I don't think it should have stopped Antonio Guterres speaking out. And I think that a lot of the moral high ground, if ever he had any of that, um, was cut out from underneath him. And it was an absolute disgrace that the people of Gaza had to sort of sit underneath um, this intense bombardment for so many days while the world's top diplomat decided he could call for um, a ceasefire. So yes, that was disgraceful. Can I just say one thing? I think Philippe Nazarini, the Commissioner General of UNRWA, um, has really been very strong in the way he has spoken out. He did call for a ceasefire before others. He may have called it humanitarian pause. I don't know exactly what the language he used was. Um, I think on the whole, I mean, you talked about language. I think UNRWA spokespeople, I think can, and I think UN spokespeople generally, could be a lot stronger. Where is UNICEF? You know, we all know that the major UNICEF committee, their US committee, um, has real ties um, to the Jewish community in America, and they're really hamstrung. I was, when I was in the UN, I was told that every press release about Gaza that UNICEF issued went across the desk of the person who headed up their American committee or members of that committee, and they had close links with, you know, with the international Zionist movement. So, you know, there are real problems um, for the UN. I don't think they make the right moral choices. I actually, in my experience, because the Israelis needed us to get aid in for, it was fewer people, about 1.5 million people. When I worked for UNRWA, I would say, great, you know, bring it on. What are you going to do to me? What are you going to do to UNRWA? Stop us doing what you're meant to be doing you know, under the Fourth Geneva Convention? I don't think so. You know, Israel was never going to allow that. And I don't think the UN has ever exploited that counter leverage to say, you know, we will speak out. You know, nothing ever happened to me. I used to go through errors through the Israeli checkpoints and, you know, I carried on doing it and I would carry on speaking out. And I don't think, you know, given my experience, the UN has really pushed the envelope sufficiently and I really think they could have done. And your very, well, your first point, but the last one I'm addressing is this question of when the Israelis called um, for the evacuation of the North, Philippe Lazzarini had to play God. And many of my Palestinian friends said, 
Um, he's going to assist with ethnic cleansing. Um, you know, he has to stand his ground like the doctors in our Shifa. Um, and many on the staff, by the way, did stay there. Not everyone withdrew from the North, precisely for the reasons you gave, Ali, and I was alluding to earlier, that UNRWA staff are part of these communities and feel very embedded and loyal to these communities. And I think many of those would have paid the highest price. I think many of those who stayed behind have prob are, are, are probably among those um, who have been killed. Though I, I forget the statistic, but you know, it's about a third, I think, of UNRWA staff have been killed in the South, which shows you know, quite how safe a safe zone the South is. But Philippe Lazzarini, in a sense, had to play God. Um, he has contracts with all of those workers, and he had a terrible, terrible dilemma. Um, you know, do I evacuate staff and say, you've got to come? And, you know, there would be disputes within families about should we go, should we stay, what should we do? And I think he thought that was the right thing to do. I'm really pleased, Ali, as I suspect you and Nora and others on this panel will be too, that never in their lives will they have to make that kind of decision. I don't know what I would do. It's, it's an utterly, utterly terrifying prospect. And he did, I mean, I was talking actually to colleagues in the UNRWA office in Lebanon, in Syria, and in Jordan. And the unions actually were very, very upset about it. Of course, these unions were outside Gaza and weren't you know, being bombed. Um, but the fact is there was huge um, displeasure amongst staff um, that this happened, and particularly some of the protection people, people working on human rights protection, said that it was a real abrogation of responsibility, that UNRWA was there to record, to protect, you know, the international, the presence there was part of the international protection, the responsibility to protect, and that UNRWA was utterly wrong. I, I understand the dilemma, and I'm very glad it wasn't me who had to make that decision. Uh, Chris, you had many years of experience with UNRWA, and you presumably know Gaza very well. So I want to ask you a question now that's on many minds. Um, it seems like the James Bond-like uh, Hamas command center that we saw depicted in that famous uh, Israeli army animation a few weeks ago, the multi-layer command center uh, with conference rooms and big weapons storage depots and, and tunnels hither and, and, and to, uh, was not under Al-Shifa Hospital. So is that command center under one of the UNRWA schools, in your opinion? <laughs> Ali, you're, you're, you're great. Thank you for that question. Um, strangely enough, I mean, you probably remember from 2014, um, again, there were, there were tunnels under UNRWA schools. And I can tell you from, you know, the truth, as far as I'm aware of the truth, we had no idea of that. Hamas, strangely enough, didn't sort of phone us up and say, hello, we'd like to build a tunnel underneath your school, or hello, we'd like to build a, center, a thing underneath your food distribution center. This was a secret operation. You're not but there, there weren't, but just to be clear, there could have been tunnels going under, because as far as we understand, there are tunnels everywhere in Gaza, but you didn't yeah, have, but I'm saying you didn't have tunnels didn't coming up into UNRWA schools. Oh, absolutely not. I mean, we would definitely have heard about this. I mean, I don't know whether you know, but there was an American program called the OSSOs, um, Operation Support Officers 
something like that. And basically, when there were all these problems, in inverted commas, with under neutrality, there was a big textbook issue where we had to use PA textbooks. And the Israelis would sort of point out that there was this depiction of Israel or there was a map without Israel on it. Um, in response to that, and many other staff neutrality issues, for example, teachers posting um, stuff on, um, on Facebook postings which glorified terrorism and war and violence and was allegedly anti-Semitic and all this stuff, um, a big thing was set up with UNRWA. And under that program, each facility was visited by an international staff member who inspected it. I'm pretty sure it was every month. And they would look for jihadist murals and you know this that and the other and as far as i'm aware in the from 2007 to 2019 my 12 years in unra there was never a single incident of you know a sort of tunnel that came up in an unra school or anything like that so i, I think i can with my hand on my heart dispel any suggestion that that took place there was the three incidents in 2014 i'm sure you remember ali where um, we found weapons components in our schools. Now, you remember the 2014 conflict happened during the summer holidays. And our schools were shut up, and they were mothballs for the summer. And in that context, where there was no other staff there, um, militants did get into the school and hide rocket components there. And when we found out about them, and this wasn't publicized much at the time, though I did tell journalists, um, we phoned up the Israelis, the Americans, and the PA. Those were the three. And, you know, Mark Regev and co. gave us no credit for that. When, you know, we were taking a real political risk. You know, a war was going on, and UNRWA, with its unarmed staff, and, you know, 13,000 of them, or 12, whatever it was in those days, and, you know, 1.5 million refugees, we said to the Israelis, we have found weapons parts in those schools. What did the Israeli Hasbara, you know, propaganda machine do? It accused us of collaborating with terrorists to fire rockets into Israel. I mean, and that, that, that was part of it, a, a huge campaign of lies and disinformation that was mounted by the Israelis. I mean, I always remember the Jerusalem Post, there were seven of our schools that were hit during 2014. And after every strike, the Jerusalem Post would phone me up and say, Mark Regev just told me, or you know, somebody in the Israeli sort of you know, information department told me um, that there were militants in the schools. And of course, in the chaos of war, you know, we're humanitarian workers. We couldn't, I couldn't say, you know, I can categorically say that was not true. But I did phone up our director in Gaza and say, did you get any reports from any of the staff of militants being there? And he said, hand on heart, no. Um, it wasn't until after the war when we had a board of inquiry, you know, where bullet, the guns had fallen silent and we could investigate it in the cool light of day. And we found that that was not true. <laughs> you know, very largely, there were no militants in our school. So there was a huge, huge campaign of disinformation and lies put out about us. I was dealing with it. I remember one occasion I went on, um, is it NBC's Meet the Press or Face the Press program? And Netanyahu was, influenced, was interviewed just before me. And when I came on there live, standing in front of a you know, camera broadcasting live to America, um, the host of the program said, 
I'd now like to show a video of rockets being fired out of an UNRWA school. And I said, listen, guys, I can't see this. And it's really unprofessional journalism of you to expect me to comment on a video I can't see. But the interview went on and I said, if it's true, we'd condemn it. And, you know, blah, blah. You know, we take steps to make sure our schools are neutral, etc. When I, my interview was over, I went down, I called up Adnan Abu Hasna, a wonderful um, program um, public information officer in Gaza. And he said, I saw it. I can tell you that was the, and I can't remember the exact school, but it was a PA school. So I went, got back to the program in Washington and said, I would like categorically to deny that lie that you just broadcast that was given to you by the Israelis. And actually, they were forced to admit that it was untrue. And not long afterwards, the presenter of that program was reassigned somewhere else. And I think it did make an impact. But it was a rare example of where, in the heat of war, a humanitarian organization was able to correct some of the disinformation. But, you know, this is a classic one, the, the video scanning the cross-section down Al-Shifa, and you get this sort of Dr. No kind of boardroom with a flat-screen television. I mean, I'm afraid to say that the Israelis are the victims of their own propaganda, because it's now, you know, this was a causus better. This was a reason to, to attack a hospital, right? So, you know, the Americans, I think even Biden sort of said he'd seen evidence and, you know, this, that and the other. And, you know, and it had the sort of, you know, the Israelis you know, put it around. It was part of their, you know, hats off to the Israeli Hasbro machinery. They got this message out there that there was a command and control center underneath this hospital. And that's why there couldn't be a ceasefire. They had to attack, blah, 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 blah. Well, you know, as part of what I hope will be a war crimes investigation by the ICC when this whole thing is over, I hope that the commander who, and they will know, the Israeli army, who is responsible for planning and executing the attack on our shipper, I hope that he, you know, there'll be an arrest warrant or he will be forced in some forum, and I hope it won't be an Israeli forum, um, to, to account for his decision. I mean, after 2014, we had, I think it was called the military, the MAG, it was an office in the IDF, which sort of did investigations. And I'm afraid to say, you know, it never got to accountability. Um, you know, the Israeli investigations that took place after 2014 were not independent. Um, they were not thorough. They did, I don't think they would meet international standards. But now we have the mechanism. Now we have the ICC. It's investigating. And I hope that the whole Al-Shifa episode and each and every individual that was killed there, that all of that will be thoroughly investigated. And if there is proof that there is a criminal in investigation and a criminal trial, individual criminal responsibility for whoever was responsible for that attack on the Al-Shifa hospital. Chris Gomez, uh, we know you have to leave um, for another appointment, so we're going to let you go. It's it's just, I mean, it's just kind of, you know, you were talking about the this propaganda of, uh, you know, like these these Hamas militants in the schools. There are now militants in the schools. They're the Israeli army who has uh, taken over and occupied UN schools, elementary schools, they filmed themselves, you know, tearing down children's spelling bee certificates and graffitiing all over the chalkboard. And machine gunning desks and Exactly, chairs. right, exactly. Yeah. And, and using the schools as sniper positions. Uh, it's, and, and, and we saw the celebratory, you know, like dinner that they were having uh, at one of the universities in Gaza. I, I don't know if it was IUG or, or a different one. Um, it's just, it's, you know, as, as we like to say here, uh, every accusation is a confession when it comes to Israel. Um, yeah. Anyway, 
we, we know you have to go, so we'll let you go, uh, Chris Gunnis. It's a real pleasure. It's a real thank pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on. Really, thank you. And, thank um, you, Chris. Good luck to all of you. Yeah. Thank you. That's very invaluable good. insight. Thank you very much. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. And um, we wanted to come back to you, Mahmoud, uh, especially after listening to Chris and knowing what you know intimately about um, you know the the reliance on on aid in Gaza, um, especially right now. Um, what are you hearing from your family, your community about uh, the UN shelters that people are in, uh, the situation there, and whether or not people are able to get basic supplies like uh, cooking oil and flour and um, water from from these UN shelters, especially during this time of um, you know the, this truce. What do you know? From what I have heard, um, from the contacts uh, with my uncles and the contact with my uh, wife's family side, they're not residing in an honorable facilities or honorable schools. They're they're in private homes. Um, <clears throat> but from what they're saying, all the supermarkets are empty. There's nothing on the shelf. And I believe anybody who is um, inside an honorable facility, they do get some sort of support, um, like some something like flowers. They have the, um, uh, those kind of date bars that are highly nutritious, uh, supplementary. Sup- I don't know what they what they call it, but um, there is some sort of there's just enough to get by, but nothing is in abundance, and not, yeah. nothing is, is safe for the time. And Mahmoud, did you hear when you were in Gaza, did you hear the kinds of criticisms I mentioned regarding the role of the UN or the UN agencies, or or was that just inevitable in this situation? Did you hear the criticisms? Do you think they were fair from what you saw, and uh, or or was it just a situation that would overwhelm any kind of system or agency? Um, in all honesty, um, at the beginning, when when the news started uh, getting around about evacuating to the south, um, almost exclusively, almost everybody at the uh, at the United Nations headquarters where I was where I evacuated was <coughs> questioning uh, leaving. They, they were they were thinking exactly as you were thinking, Ali. They were saying um we shouldn't leave because if we leave then everybody's going to blame us for, for 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 what's happening they might call us actually spies um and they might blame us and claim that we're co- collaborating uh with some sort so uh, a lot of people are against evacuation you know they said no we're going to stay here when everybody goes we go we go with the people but no way we'll be the first people to leave because if we were then we'd of course be blamed for it which is um, what's happening right now. Yeah. yeah. Well, finally, Mahmoud, um, you're a photojournalist. Earlier we we showed um, some of the, the photo essays that uh, we've published of yours over the last uh, six weeks. What images stay with you, um, you know, now that you've left Gaza, that you're trying to keep your family safe, uh, you know, half a world away, what images stay with you? What what images um, do you keep returning back to in your mind? Uh, there's a few tough ones, but generally, um, I always tend to focus on the the good times that I've had, even though it was a war. You know, um, you, you, 
you think about the the good moment you shared with the relative. You look, uh, uh, you know, about you look back on the times you've sat down and broke bread with complete strangers, people that you've never met and have gotten to know uh, to know them, and they start to feel like family. Um, as you share those days during during this war, um, and you just think about times, you know, the, the simple times. Um, anytime you, you you begin to sort of think back about the reality on the ground, it it, it hurts, you know. So um, I don't like to think too much about um, the destruction and uh, and the loss because it just every time it, it comes across my mind, it's it's just a, another reminder of how my life was completely taken away from me. If I, if I may ask a, a, que- a personal question, sure. Mahmoud, regarding your wife, uh, I think you said that you met your wife in Gaza or you, you got married in Gaza. Yes. So she would have left uh, presumably without anyone else from her, fa- from, from her side of the family. That must have been incredibly difficult for her. Absolutely. Absolutely, it is. Every day, is, it's a battle for her, you know, uh, worrying, thinking, um, what will happen to them? What are they doing? Um, if she sends a message and it doesn't deliver on WhatsApp, then her mind starts to race. All of our families back uh, in Gaza, parents or brothers or sisters, um, it's not easy. It's being outside and looking into Gaza and having people in Gaza is doing this war. It's, it's much harder for people on the outside looking inside. But being there in the moment uh, now that I'm in Canada, I felt like it was easier to manage, easier to survive because you worried less. You were just wanted to survive. But now you worry about all your family. It, it's sort of a strange concept. You know, that, that you felt somewhat safer inside the war, inside the camp than you do right now outside. You know, because you are with your family, you are with your parents, you didn't worry about them. You know, you live together, you die together. Right? But now it's sort of a, a, it's sort of hard having to think if, if they're okay and you're not with them anymore. Yeah, it's, uh, it's unbearable. We can only imagine... Uh, Mahmoud Nasser, thank you so much for joining us uh, today on the Electronic Intifada live stream. We want to have you back on uh, very soon. And please keep us uh, posted about your family and um, your community back in Gaza. And uh, we'll have um, all of the links to your your most recent uh, posts and and photo essays up on the podcast uh, post that accompanies this later on so people can see there also they can go to EI and look up your phenomenal work there Mahmoud thank you so much of course I appreciate it thank you thank you all. thank you Mahmoud thank you Ali much appreciated and this is the Electronic Intifada live stream I'm Nora Barrows Friedman with Asa Wynn Stanley John Elmer and Ali Abunima we're going to turn now to our discussion about um, what we know so far. Uh, let's, uh, let's start with the prisoner exchange over the last four days 
And now that we know that the exchange will extend another two days with this truce, uh, John, what do we know about the prisoner exchange so far? Um, we've seen Israel's attempts to obscure the public release of Palestinian uh, women and children. Uh, ben Gavir, of course, uh, issued a diktat. He said um, it's prohibited to have expressions of joy for Palestinians uh, returning home in occupied East Jerusalem. What do we know so far? Yeah, I mean, the Israelis clouded, um, didn't tell the families of people who were going to be um, released. So in an effort to prevent uh, large turnouts at Ofer prison where people were being turned over. But of course, it did the exact opposite because people just said, we don't know who's getting let out. So we're all going to go. And thousands of, uh, of people showed up at the prison and Israel had to push them away with tear gas and firing into the air. Um, but just gives you a sense of, um, you know, what they went through to try to make it so that people couldn't show up. And then what we saw, especially that first day, we've seen it every day, but that first day when people just poured into the streets, look at just surrounding the buses, the buses couldn't move. Um, everybody's cheering. And it's, I mean, I remember, we're talking about children that are being released here. These, these, this release was, um, a small number of women, many of them were young women, um, and then children uh, under the age of 18. And these are, the vast majority of them are not charged with any crime. They're in administrative detention. They don't know the charges against them. We talked at the beginning of the show. They're tortured. They don't like to talk about it when they come out of prison out of respect for the people that are still in prisons. Palestinians don't come funneling out and tell us all the horror stories. But they do, they did tell us a little bit when we had this mass exchange. And they talked, they've told stories about for the last, uh, six weeks that they've been tortured in the prison since October 7th. Um, the Israelis have cracked down on the prisoners knowing that they would be released, um, and tormenting them in that time. And so this kind of footage would you see, um, families being reunited in this way. Um, this is something that touches every Palestinian family. Everybody knows somebody um, either in their direct family or their neighbors um, that are imprisoned. Um, and to be able to free them like this in this way, um, and this, these footage of the people running, it's, um, yeah, I mean, I think honestly it's just like it, it's a singular act in, in, in all of the world, freeing people from prison. Um, is a singular act understood by anyone, particularly political prisoners, political prisoners who are children, who haven't been charged, who are being tortured. Um, and one day their jailer opens the door and says, um, you're going to be leaving. We've seen a lot of this footage. The Palestinians are still in their prison uniforms. They didn't let them change into their clothes. Um, yeah, they tried to keep keep it so their their families weren't there. They tried to tell them when they were let out that if they partied, that they would be rearrested. And of course, this is something that Israel does all the time. They rearrested people released in the Shalit deal. Um, they assassinated people released in the Shalit deal. This kind of dirty, um, you know, dirty tactics that don't. Um, indicate good faith in exchanging prisoners, which is something that needs to happen at this time um, for this kind of an exchange to go through. 
Um, you need a legitimate authority on the ground, which the Palestinians have in the Qassam Brigades, to negotiate these um, these releases in a principled um, in a principled manner. And this is this kind of footage that we're watching. Um, this is the footage that people um, suffered through in Gaza, waiting for um, this the, the, the punishment um, delved out onto Gaza. Um, it was an effort to prevent these moments. This prisoner exchange could have happened right away, particularly this phase of it, this stage where the women and the children are exchanged for women and children. This could have happened right away. And now we're getting reports today that the this would have been day four of the release, um, and we're hearing today that there's a possibility of an extension of two days. Um, and John, do you think... Do you think they've talked about an or it's been reported in terms of the terms of the uh, the truce deal was that for every day there was an extension, ten additional uh, uh, captives or detainees would be released from Gaza in exchange for um, three times as many Palestinian uh, hostages held by Israel. Uh, do you have a sense of how many? more detainees that fit the category of this uh, exchange might still be in Gaza. Do we have any reliable sense of that? No, we don't know exact numbers, but the Israelis are saying that from from their count um, that there could be as many as 90 more that could fit in generally broadly fit into this uh, this part of the exchange. Um, so it's difficult to know because we don't know exactly how many have died. Um, the number the Israelis have been saying is 239 um, that are held. The Qassam Brigades say they hold 200. So there's been something like 50 being held by other groups. And part of the reason that they want um, to extend the truce period, um, the pause period, is so that Qassam can go and find um, those other people that were taken by Gaza civilians after the wall was breached. But when we say 200, 200 or 239, is that including the Israeli military prisoners of war or is that yeah, a separate that includes, And we don't know how many of them are military. Um, the Israelis have, have at times said that there's only a couple of dozen military people. That number seems too low. Um, we know that there would have been people from the Nova Music Festival that were soldiers that would have raised that number. We know that they overran um, 12 bases and outposts and captured soldiers. But we don't know the exact numbers because for the Palestinians, that number is a super valuable number. And for the Israelis, they're trying to downplay how many of their soldiers are captured because that's where the long um, uh, discussions are going yeah. to be on getting those soldiers out. So the numbers, the numbers keep changing according to the official Israeli figures. But last time I checked the official count, it, I mean, uh, this was a few weeks ago, but they, they were saying it was only 30 of them were soldiers. But, yeah, and as you said, that's obviously a very low figure. But Well, and that, you know, we go back to, because this has come up from time to time, and I've seen people commenting on this, that, you know, people are saying, well, they're only getting three Palestinians for every Israeli civilian that's released, whereas 
when it was the Gilad Shalit deal in 2011, the Israelis released more than a thousand Palestinians yeah. for one Israeli soldier. John, can you respond to that? Is this, what's the difference here? Well, the numbers are going to go up considerably once they get into the soldiers. I think that the numbers that we're talking about, about 10 and releasing 30 and 3 to 1, that's for this humanitarian stage. And they're calling it the humanitarian stage because they're giving people who are civilians, um, who are the foreigners, um, people who that Kassam right from the beginning said that they would have given up. So that, that's where that 3 to 1 is coming in, is in this stage. Um, that three to one isn't going to, I, I don't, I mean, we're speculating, but I don't believe that Yahya Sinwar is going to go three to one no. um, for the soldiers. The, I, that number is going to be a completely separate stage of negotiations, and I wouldn't be surprised if those negotiations went on for years. Mm-hmm. But what, but what Kassam, I, I, there's a benefit to the Israelis and to the Kassam brigades, both parties in this battle. Um, there's incentive to turn over the the prisoners. Um, the logistics of Kassam holding these people that are unaffiliated uh, and are not soldiers is considerable, whereas the value of the soldiers is what is valuable. And, you know, like, that's how you can always tell the Israeli announcers on uh, an American TV when they tell you that they that, that Hamas thinks the, that the civilians are more valuable just gives you an idea that they don't know what they're talking about. I mean, Seymour Hirsch said the same thing. The soldiers are considerably more valuable than the civilians. And I'm, I would argue that the, from what we know at this point, um, the civilians weren't captured um, by the Kassam brigades in these large numbers. These numbers of people that are being turned over were, ca- were captured by other groups and by Gaza civilians. And it takes a bit of time to get those people under um, Kassam control. But Kassam has taken the responsibility, like a national government, um, of dealing with this and not saying, no, you have to deal with the other groups, they're not us, um, which is the same as the um, the ceasefire agreement. Um, didn't mention the other Palestinian groups. It just said Kassam and the Palestinian resistance. Um, understanding that Kassam could bring to heel the other groups of the resistance to follow on um, on the, their ceasefire plans. Yeah. And then after the ceasefire, we saw Kassam out in the streets in uniform, their soldiers down in the town square. We saw them set up checkpoints to look through the aid that was coming through just to make sure that there was nothing the Israelis were putting in the aid trucks that were coming through. So acting like a national government um, when we've been told that they're all hiding underground and that they're, you know, th- this war has been so successful targeting them. Um, well, the day that there's a ceasefire, Kassam brigades are walking around in Gaza City because yeah. the Israelis aren't holding Gaza City, um, even though for weeks they've been telling us about the fight in Gaza City. They can't hold one block away from Shifa Hospital. That's where the Kassam brigades were seen. Um, but they can besiege Shifa Hospital, attack the doctors, arrest the doctors, and apparently it looks as though they're trying to close down the institution itself. They, but going back to, to those observations you made, John, the what they call the optics, I, I hate that word, but the optics of this prisoner exchange and this truce have been remarkable. If you look at, we just saw some of the images, uh, the video of 
of Palestinians being released. And some of the testimonies I've been listening over the last few days, a lot of these young people and women have been interviewed by Palestinian and Arabic language media, Al Jazeera, and they give remarkably consistent accounts of just utterly horrifying treatment at the hands of the Israelis, contemptuous treatment up until the moment of their release, not even being told that they were going to be released, being dragged out of bed at five in the morning, uh, being told you're, you're being transported somewhere, not told where. Some of the kids were told, and I heard this from several of them, that, oh, we're taking you to your graves. Uh, and then they would find out at the last moment that they were being released. And they all said that, at least the ones I watched, that they had no idea that there was an exchange going on. They didn't even know that there was a war in Gaza because that's how tightly Israel isolates them uh, from the world. Uh, and, and we just saw the scenes of, you know, heart, heart-wrenching joy of the, the, the uh, re, uh, reunification of, of children with their parents and their families and mothers with their children because many of these uh, female prisoners that were taken away from children when they were very young and then kept in Israeli prisons for years. So that's been incredible. And then on the other side, we've seen, I don't know if we're going to, sh- to, to show them or not, but there have been a number of, uh, of uh, uh, videos released by the Qassam Brigades. Uh, from, yeah, let's show some of them. Okay, we do have them. Yeah, yeah. all right. So... These are the ones I'm talking about where they show the Qassam uh, soldiers handing the, the Israeli civilians over to the, uh, to the, to the Red Cross. And uh, I'm sure those Israelis are very relieved to be going home, as anyone would be. Uh, but you can see at some point that they're waving or saying goodbye. And of course... I've seen people saying, well, they would, wouldn't they? They're just happy to be going or they've been put through hell or... or Brainwashed by Hamanda. But Mm -hmm. I don't think we've seen too many Palestinians waving a a farewell to the Israelis uh, uh, at any time. I mean, I just can't imagine an Israeli, uh, a a Palestinian prisoner thanking their jailers after uh, the kind of treatment that Palestinians get in Israeli prisons, and of course, Itamar Ben-Gvir, the Israeli so-called national security minister who is in charge of the prisons, who brags every day on social media about how brutally they're treating the prisoners, purely to satisfy the bloodlust and vengeance of Ben-Gvir himself and the Israeli public. But we also saw in, in the most recent videos, I think yesterday, what you were talking about, John, where the handover didn't happen at the Rafah crossing right in the south on the border with Egypt as some of the others but Hamas actually handed the prisoner the the captives over to the Red Cross in Gaza City in Palestine Square in the heart of Gaza City an area that uh, until a couple of days ago had been uh, had Israeli tanks in it. And so what does it mean that we saw a large number of Hamas soldiers with their vehicles, with their weapons, and 
in, in those areas, and we also saw civilians in mm -hmm. Gaza City, far from spitting at them or telling them, you know, you brought this destruction on us, on us. instead the civilians kissing were kissing them, kissing <laughs> their heads, and also, uh, you know, chanting in support of, of, of Qassam. And we heard Mahmoud earlier, uh, Mahmoud Nasser talking about, you know, nobody is celebrating in Gaza. But nonetheless, th there was an element of that in, in these videos. Is this Absolutely. carefully staged Hamas? Is this Pallywood that we're seeing, as the Israel lobby calls it? No, it's a, it's, it's a brilliant move by Qassam. They, they, they decided to change the route. I mean, in part, they decided to change the route because um, some, there was kids in the south were throwing stones at the, at the first groups that were um, the groups of Israelis that were going to the border. Um, and so instead of Qassam terrifying the people before they left by having kids throwing stones, um, Qassam changed the route um, because they have the, the, um, the coherence, um, the structural military coherence to be nimble, to change their plans, to act um, on short notice, to be able to find the exact number of prisoners, max, match them to the list, and then coordinate where they're going to be exited from. The Qassam Brigades have led this process the whole time. This isn't the Israelis saying, and then you'll do this, and then you'll do that. It's Qassam saying, we'll take them to the Red Cross, the Red Cross will take them to the Rafa crossing. And then yesterday they said, okay, we're not going to do it that way. We're going to do it out the eastern side of Gaza City. So Israel had to, you could read in the Israeli papers of them being flustered. Oh, we need a new route because Qassam's giving. Welcome back. And uh, that was a panel discussion from Electronic uh, Intifada on uh, recent developments uh, involving uh, the situation in Gaza and Palestine as a whole. That's going to conclude our program uh, for today. And, of course, uh, we are here broadcasting uh, from our studios in downtown Detroit. And uh, if you'd like to have access to this program, all you need to do is go uh, to the Pan-African Radio Network, and that's at blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. If you'd like to read the Pan-African Newswire uh, so you can stay abreast of some of the most pressing and burning issues of the day, uh, just go to our website, and that's at um, uh, panafricannews.blogspot.com. That's panafricannews.blogspot.com. And, of course, um, if you'd like to... Uh, listen to the archives uh, of the Pan-African Journal. Uh, all you need to do is go to the Pan-African Radio Network, and, of course, that's at uh, blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. That's blogtalkradio.com forward slash Pan-African Journal. And uh, as we mentioned uh, earlier, uh, we are, of course, uh, commemorating the 81st anniversary of the birth of uh, Jimi Hendrix. And we're going to close out uh, with the music uh, of Hendrix. And of course, uh, this is Abayomi Azikawe uh, signing off. And have a beautiful, beautiful week.